0: So good to see you this morning, and I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12 with me this morning. So I was preparing for this, the thought of leadership came to mind, and as I think about leadership, sometimes my mind goes to those, kind of those high-achieving bosses or CEOs, and your mind might go there as well, perhaps you've worked for one or read about them in the news, the idea of the person who is a driver, a high achiever, but oftentimes maybe a little tyrannical, maybe comes at the expense of the little people. And uh, my mind went to one who is very famous in this regard, uh, Steve Jobs, who is so well known for being an innovator and definitely has shaped how we use technology in our lives today, but also was really well known in terms of how he, well, mistreated people. Uh, Whether it was an older lady making a smoothie at Whole Foods that he let her know how poor of a job she was doing. Or employees that he just thought their work was terrible and he'd let them know in front of everybody. Uh, He was just well known for having uh, epic temper. And this this, uh, would come in the form of all sorts of things. He was known to fire people with no notice. When people called him on that, he said, okay, I'll give you two weeks, but it's retroactive, so you're still fired. Um, And he would do it publicly in front of people. Uh, And boy, you know, we we read the news, and some of the people who are the innovators today, you would think about Elon Musk from Tesla or Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook or, um, oh, goodness, uh, Amazon guy, suddenly my brain, Jeff Bezos. You know these are all people that have a lot of stories written about them that sometimes in their in their drivenness, the little people pay the price and you know this happens in the church as well. sometimes ministries are formed around people who have big personalities, and they know where they're going, but a lot of people get hurt along the way. Think back to a pastor in the Seattle area who was really famous, and he was speaking at a conference for church planters, a seminar. And in talking to them, he was talking about, I'm the bus driver and the bus is going somewhere. You either get on the bus or you get off the bus. And I thought, well, yeah, certainly a pastor, a leader should be driving the bus and should know where he's going. But he went a little further than just saying, this is where we're going. He said, and if I have to throw you off the bus, I will. And I've run over a few people too. And he kind of was proud of that. And, you know, it was one of these things where I thought, is this really what, like, Spiritual leadership should look like. Now, the reason I start with that today is we've been in Matthew and we're talking about the kingdom, and of course, the kingdom has a king. Jesus is our king, and he has an agenda. He's leading us somewhere. He has this grand, epic plan. And we might, I think, mistakenly, when we think about Jesus as king, start bringing in some of our experiences as leadership and and maybe think of Well, maybe at times the little people get run over too. Is that how Jesus leads? Well, some of you might know how to answer that, but my question today isn't just how does Jesus lead? What does leadership look like under Jesus as our king? But how do we then reflect that leadership? What should our leadership look like? So we're gonna talk about these things today and I think they'll be good for us. So I'd love to pray and ask God for his help and I'd love to have you join me. So let's, let's pray and ask God for his help today as we come to the Bible. God, we are so thankful for this morning. I um, think the privilege of being in a, a nice room that's well lit and heated together with church family, to be able to lift our voices loudly and sing praises to you without worrying about anybody hearing us. God, the ability to open your word and to preach and to learn is just a profound uh, thing that we are grateful for. and We don't want to, to misuse it we don't want to forget how much of a privilege this is. God, not only do we have the freedom to do this, but the fact that you, oh God, the God of the universe would even take time to reveal yourself to us so that we could know who you are. is just a huge thing. And so God, as we we come this morning to your word, I would pray that you would use it to speak to us, uh, to shape us, to change us, to conform us to you. And we'd have an accurate understanding of who you are and your character. And, and God, we need to have teachable hearts for this. So Lord, I'd pray that we'd do that. I'd pray for myself as I speak that my words wouldn't get in the way of this process. And for all of us, Lord, as we listen, that our ears wouldn't get in the way of it. But that we, we would hear what you have to say to us. So God, we need your help in this. And we just lift it up to you with thankfulness and joy. And we look forward to our time together. And we thank you for all these things. Amen. All right, so we started last week in this section in Matthew that Pastor Jay uh, brought together and said chapters 11, 13 kind of form a unit, and we use this D. A. Carson quote on your study sheet that says, this section is held together by the rising tide of disappointment in and opposition to the kingdom of God that was resulting from Jesus' ministry. In other words, he wasn't turning out to be the kind of Messiah that people were expecting, and they were expecting someone who was going to come in as a conqueror, someone who's going to take out Rome and restore Israel to their national glory. And, and who is this guy? And so people were disappointed, even some of his followers. Last week we saw John the Baptist, kind of was wondering, are you, are you the Messiah? And this week as we come to chapter 12, we're going to see as well the Pharisees. The Pharisees are not only disappointed, but their disappointment's going to come in the form of opposition you see, Jesus didn't meet the expectations they had. And so we see this growing sense of hostility develop in our passage today. And the Pharisees, what we need to understand about them as the religious leaders is they kind of had developed this system of leadership that, uh, that was really religious legalism. It was burdensome. It was heavy. It put all these rules and regulations on people. In fact, Jesus looked at the people and in Matthew 9, 3, he, he looked at them and he said, they're harassed and helpless. And some of that might have had to do with the Roman occupation, but a big chunk of it had to do with this religious legalism that they were under because of the Pharisees. And last week, as we finished up chapter 11, I want to come back to that before we look at chapter 12 today because it's so important to have that section in our mind as we read chapter 12. It's the same thought, but Jesus at the end, he says this, and you can look at your Bibles, Matthew 11, verse 28. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why were these people tired? Why were they heavy laden? Why did they need rest? Well, it's this, this system of, of legalism that they were facing. It's all the rules, all the regulations. And Jesus looked at him and he knew this, this isn't what it's supposed to be like. And so he came preaching a very different message. And because this message did not fit into the system, he was met with opposition. I want to bring some attention as well to what he means. He talks about his yoke, putting his yoke upon you. What does that mean? It's kind of strange language. The yoke is a wooden frame used to bind two animals together. And we might hear that and think of a burden right away, restriction. But actually, a yoke is a really cool thing. When you have an ox and it's pulling something... If you add another ox to it, they don't just pull double the weight. They can actually pull more than double. It's a really cool system. It allows them, when they're yoked together in the proper way, it allows them to do more than they could have done by themselves individually. And in the Jewish mindset, to yoke to yourself to something became a very common way of speaking about life. They basically use this to mean you're going to conform to something. You get to choose what it is, but you're going to be yoked to something. And so they would talk about yoking yourself to the law. When you yoked yourself to the law, there was freedom in that. You you weren't yoked to the world. Of course, when you disobeyed the law, God brought judgment and oftentimes you found yourself yoked to some conquering ruler who came in. And many of them felt like they were yoked to the Romans, for instance. So Jesus is saying, "Yoke yourself to me. You're going to find rest doing this. Right now you're yoked to this whole system of following all these rules and you're tired, and you're worn out, yoke yourself to me, okay? we got to have that in mind before we come to chapter 12, because chapter 12 talks about the Sabbath, but it's not changing the subject. We're looking at this. In fact, uh, well, we'll get there. Let me, let me read chapter 12 first, and then we'll come back to the study sheet. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and you can follow along with me in your Bible. It says this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? Which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So here we have this passage, that's talking about the Sabbath, but it's really the focus of it is not really the Sabbath. The focus is much broader than that. We just talked about Jesus's yoke and what we really see here today is there's a contrast. Jesus's yoke versus the Pharisee's yoke and one leads to freedom and rest the other leads to burdensome tiredness weariness and so we're going to look at and let's talk a little bit more about the pharisees especially it was related to sabbath Sabbath, one of the ten commandments uh, israelites were supposed to keep that day holy not work on it but there's a lot of discussion what does this mean not to work so the pharisees developed all these traditions, all these rules about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. For instance, how far can you walk on the Sabbath without accidentally working? Well, some people figured this out and said a quarter of a mile. So here, I don't know, I wonder, did Jesus' disciples, did they go and walk more than a quarter of a mile, or was this a short walk? Uh, But don't do it. Uh, You know someone who falls down a well on the Sabbath, do you rescue them? Well, you kind of figure out, hey, how hurt are you down there? Are you like really hurt? Should I pull you up? Or like, can you wait till tomorrow? Mother-in-law, sorry. See you tomorrow. Um, Oh my goodness. This was what they were doing. in fact, picking grain in the field was one of 39 types of work that was prohibited. Do Do you get a sense of the burden that's being developed here? And and so they're sitting there, they find Jesus' disciples picking grain, and they confront him. They say, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, oh, please catch this. I I don't think the Pharisees made a regular habit of sitting in the fields waiting for people to mess up. This is opposition. They're putting Jesus under the magnifying glass, and they're trying to catch him. And this is why they're in the field. They're, They're waiting to catch him on this. And they do, and they confront him, and Jesus' response is very surprising. On your study sheet, Jesus, as he's accused, he doesn't try to defuse the situation, and he doesn't try to decrease pressure on himself. As Jesus explains what's happening, he's not trying to like, calm things down. In fact, he's kind of stirring the pot a little bit. He's going to confront them. And it's not going to end with them less mad at him, all right? So I want you to see this as we're going in. What is Jesus doing? Well, where does he go first? Jesus first points to David, and it's basically it demonstrates that David wasn't condemned for breaking the law because the law is not at odds with mercy. So Jesus first goes to 1 Samuel 21, 22. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for him to eat, nor those who are with him, but only for the priests. And of course, this story is where David's being pursued by Saul. It's during one of those times where King Saul is just in this murderous rampage, and David and his men are on the run, and they're tired, they're famished. They stop by the the temple. Uh, The priest there at Limelech um, says, boy, we don't have anything to eat other than the bread of the presence. Well, you go to Leviticus 24. The only people who are supposed to eat that bread are the priests. But David's men are in need, they eat it, God never condemns them for it. And Jesus is saying, how did they not get condemned? By your rules, there should be no pass on this, there should be no exception. Well, you know, it's interesting, because for all their rules, I think the Pharisees could have made an exception for David. After all, if anybody is God's guy, it's David, right? He's like poster boy for God's kingdom, God's people, King David. Yeah, we'll give him an exception. He, he needed the bread clearly. He was serving God. And here's what Jesus is saying. If David got an exception, guess what? I do. Now, Jesus's argument here only makes sense if Jesus is greater than David. He's kind of saying, I'm great. If, if David, because he's God's poster child for, for God's people, if he's clearly serving God, guess what? If David got a pass, I get a pass. Which, by the way, his disciples weren't even technically breaking the Sabbath. They were breaking the rules of the Pharisees. But David actually was. He did break the, the, the law, but he wasn't condemned. So he's, not, he, he's stirring the pot. He's not trying to diffuse the situation. He's going to go on. The next thing he does is he turns up the heat a little bit more, and he goes and looks at how the priest violated the Sabbath. Um, this is referencing Numbers uh, 28, 9 through 10. And Jesus says, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Here's the thing. If you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but you're a priest, guess what? You have to work on the Sabbath because people are coming to the temple to worship on the Sabbath. So what do you, did you violate something? Well, no, God gives you a pass for this. And Jesus says, well, if they got a pass, we get a pass. Why? Because they're serving me. Now get this, the argument only makes sense if Jesus is greater than the temple. And in fact, what does he say? Verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Do you see this? He is not diffusing the situation. This is a really poor way to diffuse a situation if that's what he's trying to do, but he's not. It's, it's not like he's saying uh, you know, don't be mad at us. It's more like Jesus is saying, You're concerned about these little things that my disciples are doing. What you should be concerned about is who I am saying I am. That's what you should be concerned about. And, and so he goes on. Now he really turns up the heat and he comes to this point where he looks at the prophets to show that the Pharisees were just as arrogant, ignorant of God as their forefathers were who were exiled. He goes to Hosea 6.6. He says, and if you had known what this means, then he quotes Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guilty. Hosea is just a fascinating book. Interesting guy. But in that section of Hosea 6, when, when God says, you know, I desired mercy, not sacrifice. One of the things he's talking about, he's talking to the Israelites, uh, to the north and the south, actually, to both Judah and Israel, and, and they're both kind of being rascals, and he's saying, you know, you guys say you're dedicated to me, but your dedication is like the morning mist. Basically, it evaporates really, really fast. You say you're dedicated, really you're not, and you're not going to be until I discipline you. And so they get disciplined, the, Israel gets... Uh, basically just taken out. The north gets taken out. Judah goes into exile, comes back, and the Pharisees are descendants of the, the southern nation. And you know what? They think they got this figured out. Yeah, our forefathers, they couldn't. They had to be exiled. But now on the other side, we we know what this whole dedication to God thing is all about. And actually, Jesus is saying, you're wrong. You think you're more dedicated to God than your forefathers, but actually, you're just as wrong as they are. You know, we have a way of looking back on past generations sometimes with some arrogance, like we figured this out, they couldn't figure it out. Do you ever do this? I think we do. It was funny, like my, my wife, when she was in China, she had talked to some of the students, and sometimes the topic of communism would come up, and it'd be kind of like, a, well, what, what, what about this? If communism's good, like what about these atrocities? Oh, well, well, they didn't know how to do communism. We're doing it right, you know? That sort of thing. And we do the same thing, Really? And sometimes we look back on the past, whether it's we look at missionaries and how they did missions and say, oh, they did it all wrong. We, we know how to do this. And, and sometimes there's a generational arrogance. And really, I think this is what the, the Pharisees would do. They would look back and be like, man, those people, what a bunch of rascals. You know what? We have this whole dedication thing figured out. Jesus saying, wrong. And saying, actually, you're not getting this dedication thing because your dedication is it, it, really like that more of a bratty child. What do I mean by that? Well, not a bratty child, come on. Just a child. Because if you've raised a child, this is what happens, right? There's going to be a day where your child's being a rascal, throwing fits, and you have to pull a privilege away and say, no, you can't have that. And then what happens if you pull a privilege away? Well, if the child is conniving enough, suddenly they become very polite and sweet and thankful. And what I always love about being a dad is this lasts for about five seconds, and then they come back to a question and say, so, can I have that now? And you're like, no, you actually lost the privilege, in five seconds of being sweet doesn't get it back. And guess what? The sweetness doesn't stick. Like, it evaporates like the morning mist very quickly. And this is the disciples. See, what God wanted was devotion to him that came from a heart of acceptance, a heart that said, I'm already accepted. It's it's a response to a relationship I had. And and they were more having devotion that was kind of like, I'm trying to get something. I'm trying to earn this. it's like when you're a a, a parent, you want your kids to, to behave because they're in a relationship with you and they love you and respect you. You don't want them behaving because they're trying to get something out of you. That doesn't feel very good. And yet, this is kind of what the, the Pharisees are like. So so Jesus is calling them on this. And he's basically saying, you don't understand the law, which is really offensive because they were the guys who taught the law. And, and Jesus' argument here, get this, only makes sense if he's greater than the prophets. Because he's saying, here's what the prophets write. Now, let me tell you what it means. Because by the way, I'm the one who interprets the prophets. And he says as much, because we're talking about the Sabbath here, right? And what does Jesus say in verse 6? For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This whole Sabbath thing that you guys have all these rules for, guess what? Guess who the Sabbath points to? This guy. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that the Sabbath points to. I know what the Sabbath is all about. So he's telling them right now, I'm greater than the prophets. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And boy, if you think they had issues with Jesus before... Oh, you haven't seen anything yet. So, so they are, they're going to have to respond to this. But before we get to that, I kind of want to talk about something here. When we look at Jesus, he helps us to remember that God's mercy underlies the entire law. Sometimes we get this wrong view of God that, like, the God of the Old Testament was really harsh and demanded all this sacrifice and had all these rules and everything. And then we get to the New Testament and the God of the New Testament is really nice and kind and full of grace. And the Bible has one God. One unchanging God, and his grace and kindness and mercy flow throughout the entire Bible. And when he gave the law, it was intended for mercy. It was intended because he was good and kind to people. Now, people got it wrong and twisted it, but that wasn't God's intent with it. Why did he give the Sabbath? Was it so a bunch of people would sit out in a field waiting for others to mess up? Was that the reason for the Sabbath? Well, no. No. The Sabbath was given because it was a kind gift of God because we need rest. And sometimes our tendency is to just keep working and working and never take a break and we need some rest. And by the way, the Sabbath was intended to point people to the ultimate rest they needed to kind of prepare people's hearts to say, the rest isn't found here. I'm looking forward to this one who's coming who's gonna give ultimate rest, which by the way is Jesus, which is why he says, take my yoke. You who are weary, you'll find rest in me because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath's pointing to him. So when we think about God's laws, when God says, do this or don't do this, do we, do we view God as kind of this big grump in the sky who gives a bunch of arbitrary rules because he doesn't want us to have fun? Well, I hope not, because that's not the heart of God. See, God is the creator. He's the one who formed us. He knows how we work. And he knows what will hurt us and what will help us. He knows what will bring lasting joy and fulfillment in our lives and what will create bitterness and emptiness in us. And so when God says, hey, take a day and rest, he's saying it because he loves us. The the Pharisees, I don't think they don't get this, but Jesus is pointing to this. The mercy of God is in the law and and the same still holds true today. Well, let's turn back to our text. I want to look at verse 9 and read 9 through 14, because we're going to see how the Pharisees respond to Jesus now. Verse 9 says this, He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. You know, based on other gospel accounts, this probably didn't happen the same day. This was probably another Sabbath. They probably heard what he said in the field, stewed on this a bit and said, we got to get them. So they set up this situation that when Jesus comes to the temple... Here's somebody, they know Jesus' character, they know his theology, they know he's going to heal the guy, so they set it up so that they might trap him and have reason to to go after him. And there's some irony here, because as Jesus talks about the sheep, catch this, Jesus isn't saying you're going to go rescue the sheep if you have a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath. He's not saying you're going to go rescue it because you guys think the sheep is so cute and you're worried about the sheep's feelings, Okay. We might do that, but these guys weren't like that. No, the reason they're going to go rescue a sheep is because the financial part of it. They don't want to take the financial loss of poor little lamb in the hole, ending up dead the next day, you lose a sheep. So get the irony here. They'll make exception to the Sabbath for financial gain, but not for the value of a person, not for the sake of a human. And see where their value system's all off? A sheep is valuable enough to break the Sabbath, but not a person. They really don't get God's heart in this. And so Jesus heals the man. He, he, he values the man. We see his heart in this. And as he heals the man, he's, he's not only demonstrating the correct interpretation of the law, but he's also showing that he has the right to interpret the law. See, so he had just said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now he gives them a sign and it actually shows, see, I actually am the Lord of the Sabbath. Who else could do this? Now, I want you to notice the response of the Pharisees, because did they stop and say, oh, wow, he actually healed the guy. Maybe he is the Lord of the Sabbath. You would think that's what they might do, but, but rather they, they have it set in their heart that they're going to get him, and there's no doubt about who Jesus is claiming to be at this point. And please get this, the Pharisees on your study sheet, they do, did not seek death for doctrinal disagreement. There are all sorts of factions in Israel. All sorts of people didn't agree with the Pharisees. All sorts of people had different theological convictions. They loved to debate each other. They never sought each other's death. Why are they seeking Jesus' death? Well, because Jesus is making a claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And his claim to messianic authority was heretical in their eyes. Because he's not just saying, I have a different view of the Sabbath. He's saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And please get this, even in the face of miraculous signs, the Pharisees refused to follow Jesus because he didn't fit their values and expectations. Don't underestimate the ability for humans to set themselves against God. If they decide in their hearts, I'm against God, it doesn't matter what they see. Sometimes you might wonder, why doesn't God just do a big miraculous sign, like show up in the sky one day and say, I am God, follow Jesus. Do you think a bunch of people would suddenly follow Jesus? Well, perhaps some, but you know what? I think it'd be a lot less effective than you might imagine. Because see, Jesus doesn't fit our values really well in this country. And people want Jesus to conform to their values. They don't want to conform to Jesus's values. And the fact is, for all of us, we need to think about that. What do I do if Jesus doesn't fit my values and expectations? We'll talk about that a little bit more, but let's finish up the passage here. Go into verse 15, and read through 21. Jesus, aware of this, aware that they're plotting to destroy him, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick... He will not quench until he brings the justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Why does Jesus withdraw? Well, I think there's still expectations. Expectations are still issue. People want a conquering king. They see the miraculous signs. They're going to want more miraculous signs. So he he withdraws. He tells people. He heals people, but he says, "Don't, don't don't make it known there's a certain kindness here. You see, as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus embodies mercy. If underlying Sabbath is the principle of mercy, then the Lord of the Sabbath embodies mercy. And we see the heart of the king. Unlike human rulers, Jesus' agenda doesn't come at the expense of people. Why did he tell these people not to, not to go and tell others? Well, sometimes when we look at scripture and we see people who get healed and then to go tell people about it, guess what, they get put under the microscope themselves. And what I love about this passage where it quotes Isaiah in verses 18 through 21, notice verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. What's that talking about? That's poetic, and I think it's symbolic. It's not saying that Jesus will never break a stick or put out a candle. It's talking about people. Have you ever seen a bruised reed, how easy it falls over if you bump it? Easily broken, smoldering wick, the fires put out. It's not hard to snuff it out the rest of the way. And we see the heart of Jesus is for people who would fit this description, the abused, the poor, the hurt. Jesus is not the kind of ruler who comes along and says, I'm going to run over you with the bus because you're in my way. And he says, get on the bus. I want you. He has a heart for people. You know, it's so interesting because, you know, I think about that um, example of Steve Jobs earlier. One of the ways that Steve Jobs would recruit people is he'd come and one of his pitches that he made to a number of people was basically say, what you're working on is garbage. Why don't you come with me and change the world? And we think about people who find the best and the brightest say, come with me, let's change the world together. And we might look at Jesus and think, here's Jesus, the king. He has this amazing grand scheme for all the nations, heart for the world, spanning generations. He has this plan, but I'm a mess. I'm broken. I'm hurt. No one's going to come to me and say, hey, let's change the world together. But you know what? Jesus does say that to you. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, what a mess. I can't, don't need you on my team. He says, I have a heart for you. I value you. And I don't know where you're at in your life right now, if you would fit that description of a, of a smoldering wick or a bruised reed, but I want you to know this. It means you matter to God. And says, what does it mean to be a part of kingdom? You matter to God. You matter to God. And it also means that we have to reflect the king's values. Christian leadership should reflect the king. It should value people. It means that we need to demonstrate mercy to to the bruised reeds, and I don't know why I said smoldering sticks there, (laughs) smoldering wicks. But, But think about that. Jesus wants you. He wants you in his plan. I want to talk about that a little bit more. Let's talk about how do we respond to God's word today. You know, here's the first thing. If you follow the Lord of the Sabbath... Do you reflect his principles? Is mercy evident in your life? You know, any, any spiritual practice that we do that doesn't cause us to grow in mercy or humility, or any spiritual leader we follow who's not demonstrating mercy or humility, we, we need to run far from that. If you're following the king and the king is the embodiment of mercy, we need to be also as a community. And I think about who did, not only what is Jesus like, what does he value, but who does he value? And if he values the weak and the abused and the poor and the needy, the least of these, then we do too. If our ministries, if we go out of our way only when it it benefits us, you know what we are? We're those Pharisees that will go rescue the sheep because we don't want the financial loss. But Jesus was the one who helped the man who had nothing to offer him. And the same thing, you know, I love about this church. I love that we are involved in so many ministries that help those that maybe the world looks down on. Think about those of us who've been involved in ministry with, the, uh, with people with disabilities. Those of you who that's a constant reality in your life and demonstrate God's love and kindness. Kindness. I think about those of us, I, there's some of us who go and work at prison ministries, work with those that our society has written off. Wonderful. We have an ongoing ministry at a hearthside manor. It's a memory care facility for people in the latter days of their lives dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's and other issues. And, and we love them and we care for them. And we serve them. Love that we have the Care Net bus out there today. we had such a good response. And how many of you, Spend time volunteering for CareNet. A ministry that values life. And this, this needs to be a characteristic of our community to value the things that our King values. The Lord of the Sabbath, his people need to represent that Sabbath mindset. I also want us to think beyond just individually, but as a community, as as, as a community, as we demonstrate these principles, our community becomes known as a place where Sabbath happens. And what do I mean by that? We've talked before about how, when when we're citizens of the kingdom, we have to start living our lives in obedience to the king. That means even though I'm not in the kingdom right now, I'm still a citizen of the king and the kingdom. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. I'm under the authority of the king, and I serve him. And that means if he values mercy, I value mercy. You know what happens when a bunch of people who are living under the king's values get together? you start catching a glimpse of the kingdom. A bunch of people practicing mercy, you know what happens? This becomes a community where people find rest. It becomes a community that actually demonstrates the very principle that Sabbath was all about all along. See, Sabbath isn't just about taking a personal day off. It's about being a place where we offer rest and restoration. But this means we all have a part to play in it. We don't come to church saying, how are they going to serve me today? means I come into church as part of the community, as a citizen of the kingdom, saying, how do I demonstrate the king's values today? How do I provide rest to people? These are all good things for us. I want to come to this final one. This one is one of, it's a challenging one, but I want, I want us to think about this. What is your response to the Lord of the Sabbath? Does Jesus have authority in your life to interpret values and priorities And what do you do when cultural values are at odds with Jesus? You see, the the Pharisees had this system in place, and Jesus didn't fit into the system, and so what did they seek to do? They first sought to discredit him, then they sought to destroy him. And you know what? We have systems in place today, and sometimes we look at them and, and we want Jesus to fit within our values rather than us fitting into his values. And we're all a product of our culture Willingly or unwillingly, our culture impacts us. It impacts our values. And, you know, there's things that are very obvious in the Bible that go against our cultural values. Our culture is very pluralistic. Everybody's truth is great and everybody gets to heaven. And and that's not what Jesus says in the Bible. Jesus has a very exclusive message that's very offensive in our culture. In fact, uh, we did our elders planning weekend this week, prayer planning. And one of the things we did at the beginning was we went and read Revelation, the end of Revelation, kind of a keeping the end goal in mind sort of thing. And as we did, it stuck out to me. The first part that we read talked about there's going to be a day where the book of life is opened up and if your name's not in the book of life, you cast into a lake of fire. And we didn't stop there. We read what happens, the good stuff to those whose name is in the book of life. But talking about a lake of fire does not jive well with our culture. And some of us, we might read that and say, surely it has to be something else. How how does a loving God do that? And how do you get your name in the book of life? It's only through Jesus. These things don't work in our culture. And so as we look at them, we have to say, boy, this is hard. but, But God, am I asking you to fit into my values or am I going to fit into your values? And here's the thing. Getting that place where you wrestle with something isn't unusual. You shouldn't be like, man, I'm really messed up if I'm wrestling with the Bible. I read the Bible and I look at stuff and I say, boy, I don't get this. Or, Oh, man, why, why does it have to be that way? And when I do, you know what I have to do? I have to humble myself and say, God, teach me. Change my values because I, I still have a, a a sinful nature in me that tries to walk another way, my own way. And God, I need you. I need you to change my values. Please, God, do this. Do this in my life. You know, sometimes what happens, no, we can't destroy Jesus physically the way the Pharisees did, but perhaps we discredit him or else we maybe try to rewrite Jesus a bit. We end up following this character named Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible, You look at churches and sometimes all they talk about is this guy who's kind of like this spineless, peace-loving hippie guy who who just loves us so much he would never say anything about anybody's sin. And is that the Jesus of the Bible? Well, no. I love what we said last week. Jesus loves you just as you are, and he loves you too much to leave you there. That's Jesus. You know, it's funny. The Jews looked at Jesus and they, they were like, Boy, this isn't the Messiah we expected. We expected the conquering king. It's almost like we've gone the opposite of it today. We don't want to talk about the conquering king. We just want the peace-loving guy. And the thing is, he is peace-loving. He is full of love and mercy and kindness, but also justice. And I want us to see this, that God's justice and mercy are not in conflict with each other. And so we need to be people where we don't just put faith in a name, Jesus, but we put faith in the person. And the only way we know the person is we come to his word and we learn who he is and we get to meet him and say, teach me about yourself. I don't want to love a character in my head named Jesus. I want to love the Lord Jesus, the real, the Messiah, the risen Messiah, who's revealed himself in scripture. And so, boy, I don't know where you're at this morning Issues of faith and things like that. And and what areas of our culture cause you to wrestle with things in the scripture. But I I, I do, I I hope that you find it in yourself to not respond the way the Pharisees did. Not to fit Jesus into your values, but to come with humility and say, Jesus, shape my values. I want to pray for you in that way. So I'm going to invite you to stand and we'll close. But this is definitely areas where we need God's help in all of this. So let's pray about this today. God, we thank you for the time in your word. And and, and God, all of us, all of us have a sin nature that wants to run from you. And only by your grace and mercy have you called us to yourself. Oh God, how grateful we are that you're the kind of God that loves the weak, the bruised, the, the mistreated. You call us into your program. You treat us with kindness and love and and yet, you call us to repentance as well. You call us to conform to you. You call us to put your yoke on. We don't just run free uh, uh, and do whatever we want, but to be yoked to you, to be conformed to you. Oh, Jesus, help us to be people who value that. And, and in areas that are struggle, give us the humility to, to learn who you are and to allow you to interpret what is truth and not God, I know this is difficult stuff and and we just need your help in it. Lord, I pray that our community would be one that would would characterize and value what you value, that we'd continue to be a community that loves those who are hurting, that we'd continue to be a community that demonstrates your mercy and your kindness, but also a community that doesn't turn you into a two-dimensional character and only ever talks about the things that are nice to talk about, but that we talk about your values too, that we call people to repentance. God, we wanna be that kind of community. We wanna be a community that reflects our savior, Jesus Christ. So help us to do that. Well, I pray that you would do that in the lives of each person here. Lord, we need your help in it. We need your help. And so we pray all this today in your son's name. Amen.